Well, good morning. John, thank you. You made me very grateful to God that I don't have whiskers this morning, so they tend to interfere with certain things. But anyway, it's good to be here this morning. I wanted to draw your attention before I got started to what might be one of the finest part-time jobs in the world. If you look at your bulletin, <clears throat> you see the uh, paid childcare positions. Our church will actually pay you to spend time with beautiful little girls like this one. Now, I would do that for free, being that this girl is my daughter. But I just wanted to let you know that it is out there for you who are looking for gainful employment. So before we get too, get too far along, let me pray and then we'll open up the scriptures. Father God, I do thank you for these brothers and sisters here who have turned out on this beautiful morning to hear exhortations from your word. Lord, I pray that you will help me to present your teaching in a way that personifies your son and that your message will come forth. And Lord, I pray that as it does, you might tenderize the hearts of these dear brothers and sisters to receive the word or that they might learn never to give up on anyone as you are a powerful God who can save all people. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it's my last year of college and my roommate Ryan and I hatched a plan to share the gospel with every single male on our dorm floor. And so we would saunter into rooms in the late hours of the evening, get involved in deep discussions, turn them towards the gospel. We'd go to basketball games, and as we're standing in line, talk about the gospel. We'd go out to lunch with them. Not really out to lunch, to the cafeteria. That was a treat for us. And we would share the gospel with them. And we managed to share, by God's grace, with all but three people, three males on our dorm floor. Now, two of them we did not have access to as they lived in what we called the secret room. The secret room was a closed door that could only be accessed by the secret code knock of... And then people would go in, the door would shut, and you'd never see anybody. But what came out of the bottom of the door was a very sweet-smelling smoke, which led us to believe that the secret room had some illegal agrarian activities taking place in it. <laughs> The other person we never shared with was a young man by the name of Matt Haynes. Matt was an interesting guy, kind of scruffy in appearance, partied hard, made frequent visits to the secret room. He also had a poster of the Ten Commandments hanging on his wall. Now, this would be a good thing, except for the fact that in every single commandment was a cuss word, the same one, and it was a blasphemous copy of what we hold true and sacred and dear. I mean, by all means, Matt was antagonistic to Christianity. And I never shared with him, but I thought it wouldn't do any good anyway because he was hopeless. So fast forward about a year. I'm in Hungary doing a two-year mission trip. And I get an email from my friend Ryan where he says, Guess who talked to me, Dave? Matt Haynes. Matt, the pagan heathen Matt who lived on our dorm floor? <laughs> that Matt Haynes. Apparently over the summer he had a discussion with one of his cousins who caused him to think about spiritual things. He approached Matt and asked a, a glut of spiritual questions. Ryan shared the gospel with him and then referred him to his pastor. The pastor shared the gospel with him and boom, he became a Christian. Not only did he just become a Christian, he got extremely involved in the campus ministry we were involved in. 
Further, he started to lead the youth group. And through a providential encounter, I ran into him at Ryan's wedding, and I talked him into coming to the master seminary where I was going to school. Further, a year ago, he graduated from the master seminary and is now a missionary in Ireland. Now, I have mixed feelings about that. On one hand, I'm elated at seeing such a transformed life. I mean, you don't see that that often. It just affirms my faith in in God and his ability to change anyone. But at the same time, I look back in shame as I think about how he was the one person on my floor that had access to that I never bothered sharing the gospel with. And why? He was hopeless. Now, how many of you have written off non-Christians in your life saying, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine? You think of your new boss who is a highly successful Jewish lesbian, and you think, no way. (laughs) Or perhaps a family of committed Mormons next door who are direct descendants of Joseph Smith via his 13th wife. Not a chance. Maybe you're praying for a friend of yours who, when you open your mouth, just slammed the door with force. Just said, don't ever talk to me about that again. Breathing threats. Okay. See, all of us at some point in time, and even in your life right now, think about it. Are there people in your life who you have just written off and thought they are hopeless? Well, we are not the only people who've come to such a conclusion. We might think that people are outside of of God's reach, but they're not. And the scripture furnishes us with an outstanding example in the conversion of Saul, who has become the Apostle Paul, the author of Romans, Corinthians, and a host of wonderful scriptures that edify us to this day. So let's turn to Acts chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, we'll account, we'll look at the account of the conversion of Saul. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So I got up from the ground through his those eyes were open he could see nothing leading him by the hand they brought him into damascus and he was 3 days without sight and neither ate nor drank now there was a disciple at damascus named ananias and the lord said to him in a vision ananias and he said here i am lord and the lord said to him get up and go to a street called straight and inquire of the house of judas for a man from tarsus named saul for he is praying and he has seen a vision 
Now you see in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went there. He laid his hands upon him. Scales fall off. Saul was converted. The next thing you know, he is preaching that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the son of God to all these Jewish people who are just confounded thinking this can't be the same man. But what's also interesting is if you look at verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples and they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. They were in disbelief. There is absolutely no way that this man could be a Christian. We wrote him off long ago. Now, many of you have probably written off similar people like I wrote off Matt Haynes. And they had good reasons in their mind for writing off Saul as a lost cause. So today, we're going to give you five reasons why they would write off Saul so that you will never give up on the lost causes of your life. And think about those lost causes. These might be five reasons which you might give today for doubting their salvation or five excuses for for wasting your breath on a gospel presentation. Now, here are the five. I'm going to repeat these as we go on. So if you don't get them all, it's okay. One, Saul was too well off. Two, Saul was too highly educated. Three, Saul was too zealous for false religion. Four, Saul was too antagonistic to Christianity. And five, Saul heard the gospel too many times. So the first point was Saul was too well off. In other words, he didn't need the gospel. We get this from his privileged verse. Sorry, from his privileged birth. Now, when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching about the lordship of Christ, he was put on trial and he appeals to the Roman commander. And he says this in Acts twenty-one thirty-nine. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Now, here's a key point. In contrast to most Jews, Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, if you are a Roman citizen, you are afforded more rights and privileges, privileges than just your ordinary person throughout the empire. It meant that they could not beat you with rods. It meant that they couldn't scourge you to do any other shameful punishments. It also meant that any citizen, with a few exceptions, could appeal to Caesar and appeal to him to hear their cause. Now, he didn't use his citizenship in every instance, but it is significant that he was a citizen of Rome. And what makes that significant is how he acquired the citizenship. Later on in 2227, the commander talks to him and, and says, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired the citizenship, key point, with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. 
So he was born a citizen, but you can conclude that somebody in his family at some time, being that he's Jewish and not from Italy, was given citizenship probably because they had a large sum of money. Sum of money. And this is also confirmed by the fact that his parents and his family were able to send them away to school to one of the most prestigious rabbinical schools in the Roman Empire at that time. Saul had wealth. Furthermore, not only did he have Roman citizenship, he was also from the elite clan of Benjamin. In Philippians 3, 5, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he was from the upper crust of Hebrew society. And here's why. Benjamin was the son of the beloved wife, Rachel of Jacob. We also know that Benjamin is the only son of the 12 who was physically born in Palestine. He was actually born in the promised land. And so he had the the stature of being the true natural born Jew. And Paul claims this right for himself. So he had a privileged birth. He had the best of Jewish society. He had the best of Roman society. He had wealth. Surely he would not need the gospel. Now, Paul was oppressed, impoverished, and a social outcast. Then we think he's more likely to become a Christian. Because somebody who needs a crutch is more likely to convert. In our minds, often we're biased against the rich. Citing verses like Luke 18.25, which says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, guess what? It's impossible for anyone, poor and rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says in 18.27, Luke 18.27, that things impossible with men are possible with God. People don't become Christians because they have nothing better to do. They become Christians by the sovereign work of grace in their lives. People become Christians not because they got fired from a job or broke up with their girlfriend or going through bankruptcy. We think that only if only that person went bankrupt, then I can share the gospel with them. Oh, I just can't wait till they break up with their girlfriend. Then I'm going to nail them with Jesus, right? We tend to do that. We're waiting for the tragic moment when we can come in, share the gospel, and give them hope. But that wasn't the case with Saul. He was on top of his game. He was wealthy, successful. He was gaining a reputation for being one of the most zealous of the Jews. Yet God saved him in his prime. God doesn't need people to be devastated to become Christians. God can save people wherever they are. God could save the Barbara Streisands, the Ben Afflecks, the Shaquille O'Neal's of the world, or the Bill Gates. He can save the most popular person in your high school. He can save the CEO of your company. He can save anyone at any time in any place. So never think that because somebody is rich and successful that they are outside of God's grace. Secondly, don't write off a man who is too highly educated. This brings us to the second reason for not believing that Saul could be converted. Two, Saul was too educated. We get this from Acts 22.3, where Paul defends himself before a Jewish mob. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, being Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. 
Paul appeals to his former teacher to establish his credibility. But what kind of credibility would that establish? See, from the age of five, Jewish fathers would teach their sons the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch. They teach it forward and backwards. And by the time they were bar mitzvahed at 13, they took this new man would, you know, recognized man would take a, a vow to be fully obligated to the law. In other words, he'd take ownership of his faith. And then they take the prodigious people who studied the Torah and did excellently and send them off to seminary to get more rabbinical training. And in this case, Saul went to the Harvard of the ancient Near East. He went to study under Gamaliel, who was the finest rabbi of his time. He held sway in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He's often quoted to settle disputes about scripture. And he went to receive the finest training. I mean, this would be equivalent of, of somebody addressing the American Astronomical Society by saying that he studied at Cambridge under the tutelage of Stephen Hawking, the famed theoretical theorist who sits in a wheelchair but still managed to write a brief history of time. I mean, he was part of the educational elite. And if you have any doubt about his intelligence, just read his writings. This was a man who spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and was able to write some of the most insightful, eloquent prose in Greek literature that we know of. He was a brilliant man. He was a genius. And no doubt, with his antagonism towards Christianity, he was intimidating. Often, we look at somebody who is the valedictorian of our high school, who is opposed to Christianity, and we think... No way they're going to become Christian. Or look at that person who was so smart that he can just say that argument is stupid and everyone believes him just because he's smart. He doesn't have to back it with anything else. If we look at that educated atheist who who takes great pleasure in destroying Christian arguments. Or we look at that university professor who just makes a sport of trashing Christianity in your class. We look at those people who seem to be too smart for Christianity and we say, there is no way they're ever going to become a Christian. We look at 1 Corinthians one twenty six and we cite proof. Look, Dave, it says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh. Therefore, smart people don't go to heaven. But if you look closely, you notice that it says, not many wise not, not any wise. It doesn't matter how smart someone is. The wisdom of God trumps the foolishness of men. And by his spirit, he can even take the most brilliant of men, like Isaac Newton, and convert them to the faith. Brains, intellect, and even animosity with that intellect should never hinder you from sharing the gospel or doubting God's ability to save someone. Let's go to the next reason for dismissing Saul, which is point number three. Saul was too zealous for a false religion. Now, defending himself to King Agrippa, here he is on trial again, getting in trouble with the law. In Acts 26, 5, he says, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. In Philippians 3, 5, he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And finally, in Acts 22, 3, we learn that he was zealous for the law of God. 
Now, from these passages, we can conclude that Paul was a highly trained Pharisee. Now, Pharisees have gotten a bad rap in this day and age because we see them as the enemies of Jesus. But you forget that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, and basically all sinners are the ones who killed Jesus. See, the Pharisees would be equivalent to modern day, would be equivalent to the Puritans who everyone looks at the witch trials or they look at certain aspects of what they did and writes them off as wicked. But in reality, they're probably more akin to fundamentalist Christians where they saw themselves as the guardians of the law. They wanted to protect the Torah. They wanted to protect the true religion of Israel. The Pharisees lived in a day and age where the land that was promised to them was overrun by Gentiles. You had this pagan idol-worshipping kingdom come in running the affairs of your land. And a thoughtful Jew would say, well, we probably deserve that because we have strayed from God. We have strayed from his commandments. And we know that the Torah promises that if we do that, we will be overrun by the Gentiles. Thus, many in the nation fought to bring revival back to Jerusalem. Much like many Christians in our day and age are trying to put God back into public school and put God back into the government, believing that if they do that, this will become a Christian nation again and will secure God's blessing. Now, that type of zeal is what the Pharisees had. The Pharisees were, were zealous for the first five books of the Bible. And they wanted to be personally pure before God. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to obey the law. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Second, someone like Saul believed that God would approve of his practice of the Torah and single him out when he comes back and says, welcome into my kingdom. That a longing for personal salvation. And finally, they wanted to expedite God's blessing and the Messiah's return to Israel by making sure that everybody got their act together. Like the kings of the Old Testament, who we see as heroes because they wiped out the Asherah poles and removed Baal worship, these were people who wanted to get rid of every single corrupting influence so that God would be pleased with their nation and God would come back. And so here they were committing their life, dying on every hill, defending every jot and tittle of the law. This would be a good thing if they were right. But it is tragic when you are in error. The poisoned bodies of Jonestown, the charred remains of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, and the scattered bits of hundreds of Islamic suicide bombers all testify to the tragedy of zeal, passion, and commitment apart from truth. For Paul and many others were were blinded by their own religion. They had a lot going for them. They had a monotheistic view of God like we do. They had a high view of the law like we do. They had a deep commitment to obeying it. But the one thing that they lacked, the one thing that condemned them, was they rejected Jesus Christ. And for that, what is right in many ways ended up being a false religion. Yet Paul and many others who so stringently hold to a false religion are blinded by their own self-righteousness. Try talking to a Mormon missionary or a radical Muslim or a Hare Krishna or a Scientologist. These people are often more committed to their faith than Christians are to ours. They have sold all. 
They have left everything and gave all their money, property, and time into following this false religion. And as they're doing it, they say, I hope this is right, because otherwise I'm wasting my life. Therefore, to justify that my wife, my life is no longer a waste, it must be true. Such people we can easily write off. I mean, who among you prays for the president of the Mormon church? Anybody pray for uh, the Dalai Lama or the Reverend Sun Young Moon? I know I haven't until I wrote that sentence in my study a couple days ago. (laughs) But it's true. They're so radically committed to a false religion that we think there is no way they're ever going to be saved. Yet even though cults can have a stranglehold on the people who take part of it, even though it's much, it seems to be much easier to keep people out of a cult than to pull them out, the satanic religion is not so strong that it can't be broken. Just ask Saul. That brings us to the next point. That Saul was too antagonistic to Christianity. Paul's zeal for the Torah led him to openly persecute Christians. If you survey chapter 7, you see Stephen. Stephen was a man full of faith who was preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and backing it up by doing all these miracles. Now, this greatly agitated the Pharisees who put him on trial for his false religion. So so Stephen defends himself before this hostile crowd and he proceeds to eloquently lay out the history of Israel, starting from the first prophet to the last, demonstrating how the Jews have constantly rejected the messengers of God. And he tells them that just like you did that in the past, you did that with Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, and you killed him. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not too happy with that statement. Consequently, they were incited into a rage and they drug Stephen out of the synagogue, took them to the outskirts of town because he was a blasphemer. He must be disposed of. They might be incited by the actions of Phineas to take care of this problem with the sword. Do you know Phineas? Phineas was one of the priests who sought to save Israel from a plague that was brought brought about by the idolatrous practices of some of the men of Israel. And what he did out of holy zeal was he stabbed with a spear a man and his harlot and thus stopped a forthcoming plague. From that, many concluded that violence is often what is needed to ensure God's blessing. And they were going to make sure that this person leading them in so-called spiritual idolatry must be exterminated. So in Acts 7, 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. Saul was essentially the getaway car driver as they murdered Stephen. You guys go ahead. I'll just go ahead and watch the coats. Later on, we see Saul began in 8.3. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul, for all his religious fervor, it drove him to exterminate the enemies of God in whatever way possible. 
He turned on those Jewish traitors who presented the most violent threat against the return of the Messiah. This was a religiously motivated persecution where he wanted to ensure that all idolatry was wiped out of Israel. Now, a modern day example really helps explain Paul's violent mindset. On November 4th, 1995, President or Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of Israel was a worried man. After negotiating with Palestine, he conceded a large parcel of land, in fact, parcels of the Holy Land to the Palestinians so that they could set up their own independent state. Now, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for this as the rest of the world thought he was finally going to bring peace in Israel. And although this made him popular with the rest of the world, on November 4th, he found out that Israel was not too fond of his decisions. In fact, 78% of Israelis wanted him to wait before conceding the land until they had a national, uh, until they had a national referendum that could be passed. And so what he did was he decided, I need to rally the troops and rally support. And so he addressed 100,000 Jews who greeted every word, phrase, and sentence with uproarious enthusiasm. So giddy from the success of the speech, he, he strolled down to his car. He didn't notice a lot of things that he should have noticed. But he was greeted by Yigal Amir's Beretta. And three subsequent shots laid him out, and mortally wounded him. Now, what was interesting was Yigal Amir's reaction as security personnel pounced on him. He said, why, why are you handcuffing me? I did my job. Now you do yours. Which shows you the cold calculation in which he assassinated him. See, Yigal Amir was not a lunatic. He was part of a right-wing radical group who opposed giving one inch of the Holy Land to the Palestinians. He was an educated law student who concluded from a study of the Torah and the scriptures that Yitzhak Rabin was a traitor, he was an enemy of Israel, and he must be disposed of by whatever means necessary. And just like he didn't want to secede one inch of territory to the Palestinians, Saul in the same way did not want to cede one inch of spiritual territory to anyone except for those who follow and practice the Torah. Nowadays, when religious persecutors make fun of Christians and deny them certain rights, we might attribute it to emotional animosity. They just don't like us. But what is by far scarier <clears throat> is when you have cold, calculated killers who do it out of a deep sense of not only hostility, but out of religious duty. Those are persecutors that you should fear, and Saul was one of them. You see, so often we write off people who do persecute us, and they don't even persecute us to the same degree that Saul did to the Christians. That atheistic professor who rails against a Christian student, who has a guts to challenge his secular assertions, no way. That fellow employee who always points out when you fail as a Christian, uh-uh. Celebrities like Bill Maher who love to ridicule the Christian point of view. Nope, they're not going to become a Christian. Those radical Muslims who capture and kill missionaries. Not a chance. That didn't stop God from saving Saul. No matter how much he persecuted them. Perhaps some of you persecuted Christians in your former life. 
God, through his power, was still able to break them and to save them. Now for the last reason for dismissing Paul as a lost cause. Saul heard it all before. Saul heard the gospel too many times. Now one should note that Jesus did not simply ask Paul to submit to his lordship, understand the substitutionary atonement, and give his life to him. Rather, he just told him, asked him, why are you persecuting me? He identified himself, gave him a command, and said, wait there for further instructions. And from that, he concluded that he was, that he became a Christian. and started preaching that Jesus is Lord. He never heard the gospel from Jesus, but he certainly heard it from Stephen. When Stephen was on trial for his alleged blasphemous teachings, he shared the gospel. No doubt, as he arrested many believers, some of them might be sharing their faith with him. But we also know that Saul had to know the gospel well enough to determine who had this dangerous teaching of the way. He was familiar with the cultic doctrine of Christians. He heard it all before. And so easy it might have been for all those Christians to say, well, he heard it from Stephen and and he obviously knows it's not to persecute us. So we just uh, won't worry about him. But what we forget when we write off Christians or non-Christians like that, who've had the gospel shared with them so many times saying they know what to do. They know what I stand for. I'll just be a good person and hope they ask. And if we forget that, just like in the parable of the soils where the sower cast a seed upon pavement and Satan comes by and picks it up, the gospel often bounces off of the bulletproof hearts of non-Christians. We share the gospel with them, but it doesn't make sense. There are people in my life who I've shared the gospel with multiple times, and they always have the same questions, the same objections, and it's like they had amnesia between now and the last time I shared with them. The reason why is they're unregenerate, they can't understand it, and yet we must persist to keep on sharing the gospel. One evangelist notes that the average Christian, before he converts, hears the gospel six times. Just because somebody heard it before and rejected it doesn't mean that it's final. I know I heard the gospel many times before I finally accepted it. Saul heard the gospel many times before he finally accepted it. But he eventually converted and became a Christian. Now, at the root of all of these reasons for dismissing people and writing them off as lost causes are, is the idea that if there is no chance of someone becoming a Christian, we might as well not even try. If there's no hope of them converting, why bother wasting your breath? Now, you may not admit to saying that, but I know I've said that deep within my heart many times, that I've written that off as well. When I thought about it, this idea is latent with a lot of bad theology. It's full of deception, and, and here's five of them. One, it is hard for God to save certain people. So often we think that people who are successful actors, successful radical left-wing liberal politicians, members of wealthy Jewish families will never become a Christian because they would have to give up too much to follow Christ. They may have to sacrifice their careers. They might be blacklisted from getting a new film. Or they might lose their family inheritance. Hanukkah will be miserable for them the next time if they become a Christian. We think if they were only nice, moral, middle-class suburbanites, then instead of going from here 
to here to become a Christian, they'd only have to go from here to here. It won't be too inconvenient for them to become a Christian. Yet that loses the fact that people have to give up just as much to become a Christian. That even though people are wealthy and the world might esteem them of having it all together, spiritually before God, they are bankrupt. It cost Paul everything to follow Christ. He had to tell his parents who sent him to seminary to get a Jewish education that I rejected your faith. He had to withdraw from any positions of power he might have achieved from being a successful persecutor of Christians. He lost everything. He lived like John the Baptist, a hermit, going from place to place, not, not knowing where his next meal would come from. He gave that all up because Jesus Christ was worth it. It never cost too much for anyone to become a Christian. It always costs too little because when you compare that with the surpassing value of Christ, it is always worth it. Number two, we think that you know, another belief that we have that might cause us to think that somebody has no chance of becoming a Christian is that the more one acts like a Christian as a non-Christian, the greater likelihood they will become one. Within this idea is the idea that some people are not as bad as others. Radical, atheistic, homosexual, lesbian, feminist are not as are far worse from your good, moral, upper class, you know, Caucasian person who is a good, moral person who goes to church. The the, the homosexual has to go from here to here, where the where the upper class moral suburbanite goes from here to here. But that's just full of bad theology. You look at Isaiah 64, 6, which says, For all of us become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Sure, some people might seem to be more righteous than others, but the difference between the most wretched sinner in the history of the planet and the most righteous person who ever lived is like the difference between the bottom and the top of Mount Whitney. Viewed from Mars. It's nothing. Sure, there might be some external differences, but before God and spiritually, we are all equally bankrupt or practically equally bankrupt before him. All of us need the same grace, the same spirit, the same salvation. We need to do the same thing. And it's just as hard for all of us to do it apart from the spirit of God because it's impossible. Number three, we think that evangelism for evangelism to be worthwhile. The person needs to be saved. Now, if we refer to a message I taught about a year ago on successful evangelism, I pointed out that successful evangelism does not center around making converts. It centers around glorifying God. And you can glorify God in three ways. One, by your obedience. When you share the gospel and are obedient, that glorifies God because you submit to his commandments. Two, when you share the gospel in such a way that people can accept or reject it. It glorifies God when people accept it because you have another brother in Christ. Another worshiper in heaven. But it glorifies God when people reject it because it exalts and lifts up his righteousness. They can't stand before God and call him unfair. Because God can say on August 29th at 1155, Dave Hint shared the gospel with you and you rejected it. Either way, whether people accept it or reject it, if you're obedient and it's done clearly, it exalts and lifts up God. The fourth thing is we choose people and not God. 
It's not our job to selectively choose people who would desire to come to heaven. Sure, we have hearts for our family members, our friends, people that we know, but we can't necessarily decide which one among them goes. That's God's job. See, the reason why most people tend to choose people is they choose the moral people. They choose those people who act most like themselves or those people who they believe won't lash back when you share with them. The nice Mormon missionary, when you share his faith with you, when you share his faith with him, he has to be nice to you. So go ahead and do that. But the atheistic, God-hating professor, kind of a contradiction, but that's what atheism is, will hand your head to him, hand you your head back. So we stay away from those people who had the power to hurt us, those people who are afraid might lash back, instead opting for the people who are a little bit easier to share the gospel with, those people who won't strike back, who at least smile and be congenial when you share with them. See, and this just relates to the natural human inclination that we all have to take the easy way out, to do what's comfortable, to do what's easy. But aren't you glad that Jesus Christ did not do what was comfortable and easy? Amen? And then finally, certain people don't need the gospel. We believe that people who are rich, successful, and famous, and the like, don't need God. They already have enough. But that is looking at the temporal realities instead of the spiritual realities. While they might have all the wealth, fame, and fortune that they can never hope for in this world, they are spiritually destitute and bankrupt and impoverished. Everybody needs the gospel. Now, when you look at this and some of the five reasons that I gave you as far as why people might reject the gospel or why we might reject sharing the gospel with certain people, you can probably add a few more. You can talk about this person's way too immoral to hear the gospel. He's already committed to this wicked, wretched lifestyle. He's a member of satanic cult. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, but the fact remains the same is that it is wrong to reject the fact that God can save certain people. What kind of God do you think that we say that we serve? His God is able to break the hold of sin on anyone. He can save anybody at any time in any place. Therefore, we should not sell him short and sell his power short. God can save anyone, even you. So what can you do about this? Well, the first thing is you need to repent. You need to repent of having a low view of God and his power. You also need to repent if you've ever given up on anyone and recommit yourself to praying for their salvation earnestly and fervently. Commit yourself to sharing the gospel with those people. Perhaps even share the gospel with that person you've been thinking about would never become a Christian. Share the gospel with somebody who's totally different from you. Secondly, or you also need to uh, you know, learn how to share the gospel if you're not skilled in it. You can take my class, which is being offered a week from Thursday. You can call my secretary and schedule an appointment. But also just realize that God can save anyone and go in with the hope that God can do amazing things. And that knowing that the only gospel presentation which God does not use is the one without words. According to Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. It is necessary. And by way of conclusion, I wanted to, to give you one more encouraging story of how God can save anyone. It's the story of John Wesley, the famous evangelist who was returning home from a service one night. He was robbed. The thief, however, found his victim to have only a little money 
and some Christian literature. As the bandit was leaving, Wesley called out, Stop! I have something more to give you. The surprised robber paused. My friend, said Wesley, you may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The thief heard away and Wesley prayed that his words might bear fruit. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after Sunday service when he was approached by a stranger. What a surprise to learn that this visitor, now a believer in Christ, as a successful businessman, was the one who had robbed him years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh, no, my friend Wesley exclaimed. Not to me, but to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. These words ring true today, though through the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, you never know who might be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are indeed powerful, that you are able to break the stronghold of sin that so easily ensnares so many people who are lost. Lord, might we repent of our faithlessness and your power to save people. Might we submit to you and turn to you and you might use us to bring about revival in the city as we share with those difficult people. And Lord, that you might fill the pews here with converted souls, people who we wrote off, and might they be cause us to worship you all the more as we see your power. We pray for all those who might be on the other side of salvation, those people who do not know you and they know it, or those people who do not know you and do not know it. Lord, that you will make their sin evident before them, that you will convict them, and Lord, that you will save them. Pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.